Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's a weekly podcast about agriculture and medicine with an emphasis on biotechnology and the good things we can do for our people and the planet. My name is Kevin Fultz. I'm a podcast host, a professor, and someone who cares a lot about science communication and how we can better discuss the exciting breakthroughs that are happening around us in the area of biotechnology. Now, for some of you, I'm going to make you maybe smile a little bit if you got a little gray on your head, um, maybe make you laugh. But I want to talk about DNA sequencing. And back in the day, 2000, oh no, 19, eek, <laughs> 1992, 1993, I was the king of DNA sequencing. We used to use dideoxy sequencing, the old Sequinase 2.0 kit. And I know there's other people who've done it in more you know, primitive ways than I was doing it. I know people do Maxim Gilbert. We won't go there. But I was really good at this. And to give people an idea of what it was like to sequence DNA, the afternoon before, he poured the gels. And pouring the gels was done by taking the neurotoxin of acrylamide and mixing that with polyacrylamide, just a few little grains of uh, APS or ammonium persulfate, and uh, mixing that together and not letting it get warm, and then adding a little bit of the catalyst to make that polymerize. I can't even remember the name of the catalyst now. I want to say timid. But anyway, you put this stuff in there, and it would cause this liquid of really dangerous molecules to polymerize into a matrix. And it would do it relatively quickly. So you would add the timid to the mix. It would begin to polymerize. And as it starts to polymerize you would draw this up into a syringe and you would pour it into a gel mold. The gel mold was two large heavy plates, usually about, I don't know, maybe about 60 centimeters, no, maybe bigger, maybe about 80 centimeters by about 40 centimeters, two big heavy plates, and you would rub them with a siliconizing agent to make them not sticky. Eventually, we started using Rain-X for the windshield wipers. You'd only apply it to one side so it stuck to the other. So I should say the gel would stick to one side and not the other. You would do this and then you would separate those two plates by four tenths of a millimeter of a plastic spacer. And that little plastic spacer would go in between the two plates and then you would, you would seal the edges together really tight. And then we could get into a discussion of the two camps that were alive back then, it was clampers versus tapers. You could either use the right brand of, T of 3M packing tape to seal the edges or use the book binding clamps and put them all the way around um, the, uh, uh, you know, the big, real strong clamps. And if you use them too many times, they got too weak to hold it together and, and you would have the stuff pour out as fast as you poured it in. Anyway, you make this mold 
which was these two plates stuck together with four tenths of a millimeter between them. And then you would take the syringe full of polyacrylamide APS uh, solution, acrylamide, uh, bisacrylamide, and uh, APS liquid, and you would pour it in between the plates. And you would start at what edge and dribble it in and watch it run down the side of the plate and slowly fill the bottom of that, that space between the plates and fill to the top. The plates were heavy. They were awkward. They were difficult to work with. You had on gloves, usually a mask and a lab coat. And you were trying to fill these two plates and you couldn't have any bubbles. Bubbles would give you distortions in the gel and would cloud interpretation of your results. So if you got a bubble, you would stand the plate straight up and you would tap where the bubble was or get a test tube adapter out of the centrifuge and strike that area repeatedly with just the right pepper, uh, pressure to bust the bubble loose. And once this whole form was full of, of gel and you're racing against the clock, at any moment it could click polymerize. And now you had to start over from the beginning. You'd pour this gel and then you would stick a comb in the top, like a, literally something that looked like a comb that defined the little wells where you'd put your samples. That was day one. Day two, you'd get in super early before the sun to put the gel into an apparatus where you'd apply a massively high voltage to warm the gel so that your DNA samples would stay denatured. Oh, I left out the urea. You would use a denaturation agent of urea to ensure ionic environment where DNA would say stay single-stranded. So then you would heat your reactions. Oh, you would use radioactive sulfur to give you a signal where your where your DNA was traveling in that matrix, or use a radioactive phosphate, a P32, really hot, if you had the label next to the primer for short read sequencing. So many little weird nuances. So then you would run these reactions. The radioactive reactions would all terminate each strand of DNA synthesized with a different molecule, either an A, a G, a C, or T, corresponding to the different nucleotides in DNA. You would then load these into this hot, toxic, radioactive gel <laughs> into these little holes where that comb was pipetting above your head and watching it go into the little holes, at which time you would apply a very strong voltage and that would drive those sequences through the gel, allowing you to separate individual bases from each other. It would allow you to read the sequence from one end to the other eventually, but you would do one run and then after a few hours, maybe three or four hours, stop and load another set and then run it, and then after three or four hours, stop and load another set. Three or four hours, run another set. And after that 16-hour day, you would then take that poisonous radioactive gel, take a little spoon, and try to split the two plates from each other, where that four-tenths of a millimeter gel would be, with all the sequence information spread in between. You would then transfer that, you would use a piece of Schleicher & Schul GB002 blotting paper, which is this paper that you would stick to that gel and gently pull the corner, hoping it would stick. And if it stuck, 
You could eventually lift the entire gel, transferring it to a piece of paper. You'd cover it with a piece of saran wrap, and then put it into what was called a gel dryer, which was a machine like a flatbed vacuum uh, heating bed that would then draw a vacuum and suck out the liquid under heat, leaving you with a film of polyacrylamide with all of the DNA bands that you created separated by their individual base length embedded in that matrix. This was the most horrible moment because if you remove the vacuum too soon, the gel would fragment into a billion pieces and your data were lost. Two days down the drain. It happened a lot. But more than not, you would get this beautiful thin film, this glossy film of a polyacrylamide gel full of DNA, radioactive, that you would then place into a, a large film cassette with a big piece of film, like, you know, two feet by three feet, 90 by 60 centimeters, and put away for the night to expose. The next day you would shove that film through a processor and it would reveal the information that was in the DNA you sought to sequence. If you were really good, you might get 600 bases. And if you think about that, finding your way across a gene where you didn't know the sequence, 600 bases at a time, made sequencing an entire gene quite formidable at the time. I sequenced, I remember, about 11 or 12 KB of a ribosomal DNA variant in the course of a summer. Of course, I did it in both directions, you know, left to right, right to left, to ensure I got the same data from both sides. That was the standard of the day. But that was 1992-1993. Later on, sequencing would get to the point where in the year 2010-2011, we released the sequence of the strawberry genome, 246 megabyte megabases, um, 246 million bases of DNA that were sequenced by remarkably new means. And this was what was so exciting was that now we were able to go from this long, tedious method to a much ra- more rapid method in the short of a short time of under 20 years. But today it's even more different. Today you have the ability to sequence DNA maybe an entire human genome, over the course of several hours. This is the new technology. And it's exciting technology because it's the cornerstone of personalized medicine. It allows us to make good predictions about problems we may have that we never never see because the symptoms haven't presented yet. But allows us to predict and prepare for and perhaps take medical intervention in order to stave off the consequences of these latent disorders. At the same time, there's risk. Who protects that information? What happens if insurance companies decide to not insure you because of something that could eventually happen? These are some of the questions I was really excited to ask. So today we're talking to Kamal Abad, He's the chief executive officer of Nebula Genomics and also Dennis Grishin. He's a chief scientific officer at Nebula Genomics. So welcome, Kamal and Dennis. Hey, Kevin. Thanks for having us on. Yeah, thanks for having us. 
you know, this is really cool. I've wanted to do an episode on sequencing for a long time. And it's more about um, maybe about the application of sequencing more than the technology itself. But let's start out with an easy question. You know, why is it important for someone to have their DNA sequenced? And what benefits can come from that? So it's important for multiple reasons. Uh, and I guess different things are important to different people. So there are multiple reasons for which uh, people get sequenced. Um, I think one big thing that can objectively be seen as important is carrier screening. And this is something that is you know, well understood, certain highly pathogenic mutations causing uh, severe diseases, potentially causing such disease in offspring. Um, so it, it's it's uh, it's something that can be done today very well if if you know parents before having children uh, get whole genome sequencing or whole exome sequencing to find whether they carry of any such mutations and there are certain risk lesser risk of their children being born very sick and if they find that there are you know preventive measures that can be taken to, to just ensure that this, this doesn't occur so that's a very very good use case um, there are other use cases as well. Uh, for example, you know, more and more studies are being published that identify uh, associations between, you know, hundreds of various genetic variants and also common conditions like, you know, heart disease and diabetes. And what scientists do today often is calculate so-called so polygenic risk scores that tell people how likely they uh, are to have such conditions. And if you have your genome sequenced, you can essentially take that knowledge that is being continuously generated and apply to your own DNA and learn about your personal risk to such you know, common conditions that most of us are gonna get um, at some point in their life. Well, let me ask the obvious question is that, you know, to me, I see this as brilliant. I think this is a great way for people to make better decisions. I think it's a great way for two people who are considering to be parents to make better decisions about whether they should reproduce or, you know, or, can, or the things they should be prepared for if they reproduce. But others will say that this is meddling in something we shouldn't be meddling in. And where do you fall on that? I mean, is this something that, that you feel is a really appropriate and useful ethical tool to ensure that people are making the best decisions about their health and the health of their offspring? Well, I think it's solely for the parents to decide. And I think for most parents, it would be a very clear decision that they don't want, for example, a child to be born that will maybe only live for a couple of weeks and then die because it was just born with a severe genetic disease. I think it's really hard to argue that this is that can possibly be desirable. And so I think what we should do is uh, to create the technology, make it accessible, uh, to as many people as possible, educate people about its availability, and then leave the decision to to the, to the individuals whether they want to get such a screening before having children or not. Oh, very good. Now, can you clarify something for me, though? Two things. First, what is the difference between whole genome and whole exome sequencing? And when you talk about access, can anybody do it? Or how much does it cost right now to obtain a genome sequence or an exome sequence? Your first question, what, what, what's the difference? So exome um, is essentially a, 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 consists of about 1% of the entire genome. In particular, the, so to say, the most important regions of the genome, that, that's exome. And those are the regions that are the actual genes that encode instructions for production of those you know, proteins, which are molecular machines, and that fulfill all possible functions inside the cell. And when there's typically a 
you know, severe diseases occur, it's due to those molecular machines being broken because of mutations in genes. So you capture that by just sequence whole exome, which is, as I said, 1% of the genome. However, um, we are, you know, increasingly finding that non-coding regions that are surrounding uh, those genes are, can also be very important because they regulate the activity. So if you have mutations there, uh, you can have, you know, so a gene is not directly mutated, its activity can be down or upregulated, which can also lead to diseases. And if you do whole genome sequencing, you essentially capture not only the genes, but also all the surrounding regulatory regions. Um, and what, what I think an important point here is that sequencing costs have come down a lot. And at, even at this time already, it increasingly simply doesn't make sense to just limit yourself to just 1% of the genome doing just exome for almost the same price, you can just do the entire genome. So whole exome sequencing as technology is probably going to die out in the next few years because everyone will be just doing whole genome. So what does it cost though? Like if I came into uh, you or your company and said, you know, hey, I'm here. I just want all my information on all my A's, G's, C's, and T's on the right order um, as chromosomes on a, on a a terabyte disk drive. Could you do that for me? And how much would it cost? Yeah, so the costs vary a lot uh, between different providers. If we're talking just about, you know, doing the sequencing and giving you your data, as you said, your ACTGs, we're talking about, we, we can do it for $300. So right now it's between $300 <laughs> and, and $1,000. But you can, <laughs> I'm sorry. No, no, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Like, <laughs> um, it, it, it just makes me happy because... <laughs> Um, not that long ago, like a, like a decade ago, I think we spent about, I don't know, 275,000 to sequence 240 megabases. And, um, you know, when you said $300, I got goosebumps and tears at the same time <laughs> and I couldn't figure out if I wanted to laugh or throw up because it, it, I mean, it's awesome. It is absolutely awesome that we can be there now. Um, I thought that it, I wasn't sure what it was. That's why I asked, but I thought you would say, oh, it's about you know, 5,000 bucks, but $300. I mean, you know, there's people who charge more than that for lawn care. I mean, uh, so, so, you know, please, you know, continue, but three to 300 to a thousand dollars. And what will that get me? Um, yeah. So essentially that gets you your whole genome sequenced. If you want to have your data, at least with us, you can, you know, download all your raw data and, you know, then just store it or, you know, maybe try to take a look at it yourself if you like, etc. Um, but what I think where it can get more expensive um, is the analysis part, right? So if, if let's say we're talking about someone who, who believes they might be suffering from a rare disease and they have no idea where the mutation might be. So what they need is not only the whole genome sequencing, but then and also need kind of a clinical geneticist to do very careful analysis of the data, try to figure out what might be going on. And that's, that's actually now where today most of the cost is coming from if you use so if you if you use you know diagnostic sequencing services um, that then might end up costing several thousand dollars. Okay, and what is the primary focus of your company and the things that you do? Um, yeah, so our primary focus is really uh, the empowerment of uh, as many people as possible, right? So we are, we are not positioning ourselves as kind of a clinical diagnostic service, but rather we just want to have the core technology make it accessible to, accessible to as many people as possible. So what we offer our users is get sequenced as cheaply as possible so we can do it for $300. 
people can download all the data. We provide them tools that they can use, just explore the data. If things like, you know, search for any gene of interest or look, look up any variant in your genome. Uh, we also provide people reports based on latest studies. So I mentioned earlier, the genome vitalization studies published almost every day today. And we, every week, release new reports based on the latest studies. And the pitch to our users here is kind of stay at the cutting edge of science, learn about the latest research and how it applies, um, how it applies to your genome. Uh, so our service is kind of focus on people who really want to be on the cutting edge and want to benefit from that technology interest in exploring the data themselves. So that, that's our core audience. But we obviously have other people buying it as well. You know, we have people who think they might have real diseases buying it because they you know, don't want just to rely on physicians. They want to explore the data themselves, find out what might be going on with them. So they buy our, our, our service, use our tools. We have people <laughs> who are interested in ancestry buying it as well because they can get much deeper insight into the ancestry through whole genome sequencing compared to genotyping. So there's really a wide audience. Yeah, this is really amazing. So I guess the, the thing I think about is, you know, it's one thing that we already have an information base like Google, where people go out and find the diseases they think they have. <laughs> and now we'll have DNA sequence where people will be parsing through looking and doing their own sleuthing. But how important do you think this will be in diagnostics is this is this really equivalent to the sigmometer in the early 1900s or the mri you know will this be a diagnostic tool that before the physician will see you you'll have to have a dna sequence in hand with a report that gives them kind of a snapshot of what they might think to look for before they begin an examination so i think that's still uh, somewhat of an open question, but the, the evidence is showing that as the cost continues to go down uh, towards whole genome sequencing, that it becomes increasingly cost-effective to use whole, whole genome sequencing as a diagnostic tool. And you kind of alluded, it, alluded to it before that the cost was really, really high and it's a lot lower now than you expected. And that's a trend that we're expecting to continue. So you're seeing a lot of research that's uh, making compelling arguments that at population scale or at substantial scale, um, whole genome sequencing or next-gen sequencing as a diagnostic screening tool is actually value-add and is cost-effective. Um, so our co-founder, Dr. George Church, has a really uh, interesting analogy that I think is useful to share, where he kind of describes whole genome sequencing as, as wearing a seatbelt. Um, so the idea here is, you know, most people wear their seatbelt every day, even though it's, it's not useful in the vast majority of cases, but there is enough uh, overall value to wearing your seatbelt that it's an action that everyone does. And we think whole genome sequencing will be very similar in the future where it'll eventually just become part of standard routine care. Um, and it will be one of many tools that physicians and providers have in their, in their tool belt um, to come to the best diagnostics. I think we're increasingly seeing um, that uh, genetics is not uh, you know, necessarily always 100% of the picture when it comes to someone's health and, and wellness, but uh, it does play a significant part in many cases. Um, that's going to be more and more important when it comes towards diagnostics and um, even further down the line with, with drug discovery and, and therapeutics development. Yeah, I think that's a huge part of it. You know, what are the, the things I found from my sequence about the drugs that you shouldn't use because they won't work or, you know, less likely to be effective? Uh, that kind of stuff is really great information that a physician should know, or at least I should know as a patient. But the thing you opened up here that's really interesting, $300 for a genome sequence, 
How is that being done? You mentioned next generation, but we're like now, you know, 11 years past next generation, maybe more. Um, what, what, what does next generation mean right now? Like, how are you sequencing uh, the 3.6 billion nucleotides of a human genome with uh, what, what technology are you using? So what we use is, uh, you know, pretty much the standard short read uh, next generation sequencing, you know, 150 base periods. Um, so this is, this is, I think, the core technology that is available today at, at low prices and that is, that is used by everyone. Now, there's a, maybe there's a generation that will come after that, uh, you know, long read sequencing that will uh, help resolve certain mutations that are currently cannot be discovered as easily. And we have been actually hearing feedback from some real disease patients asking us, can you introduce also long read sequencing because uh, more complex mutations like you know structural variations are really not discoverable with the short read technology. And you know we would like to say yes, we would like to make it available as soon as it becomes a bit more affordable. Um, but yeah, the current technology is short read whole genome sequencing, and we can do it as as I mentioned for around three hundred dollars. Is a lot of that because there is so much reference information that it's easy to assemble a huge amount of short. So you come up with short reads, which are what 150 nucleotides long. So 150 letters of DNA. And the reason you're able to put them together is because you have such a foundation of so much genome information from humans that you can just interrogate it against uh, an existing large amount of data to see where it really fits. Is it, is that really what makes it feasible? Um, actually, I, I don't think so. I think the method in terms of uh, kind of assembly of the sequence, it, 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 it's not really affected by the number of genomes that you generate. Uh, the, the way this alignment is done and you know, has pretty much hasn't changed over the past 10 years. There's a small number of so-called reference genomes that uh, scientists have created and that, that are kind of constantly being updated. and the way it works, you have to take that reference genome and then you just map the short reads so of that individual person that you produced to that reference genome. And we identify the positions where essentially the sequence of that person differs from the variance genome. And then you say, you know, the other person has a variant. And um, then you can look into whether this variant has been identified to have any, any effects. I see. And maybe the other question, and you alluded to this earlier, but it's important, is that, okay, the genome sequence is the same, but the research around it is changing daily, if not hourly, that we have new papers that come out that describe associations, which mean like general uh, uh, correlations between a certain genome sequence and a given disease. And sometimes it's causal. Sometimes you find the, the deletion in the gene that causes the disease. But other times it's just associations. But that data is constantly being updated. How are companies like yours and others keeping up with the new data and integrating it into the analysis or even better, retrospectively? Someone gets their sequence done with you today. In two months, if a new paper comes out that finds something they should know about, is that something that you would contact them or tell me a little bit about how it works? So uh, Dennis somewhat mentioned that uh, a core part of our product right now is the weekly updates that we give to users. So every week um, our users are subscribed to getting 
uh, all the newest research and personalized reports on uh, what could be the um, what, what is the relevant information on that research to their specific genetics. And everyone who gets genetic testing with us has access to all the previous updates. And if you're subscribed, you get access to all of the future updates. Reporting on things like, like incidental findings or, or doing diagnostics is not something we're doing today. Uh, we're mainly providing a tool for people to explore the existing literature and the cutting edge literature that, that we're vetting with our team of scientists, um, exploring it themselves. So we don't give any diagnostics or reporting on that today, but it's something we're definitely interested in. And uh, I know a lot of companies are, are tackling uh, ways to report on, on, um, on, on novel ways to automate variant interpretation and things like that. This is really exciting. We're speaking with Kamal Obad and Dennis Grishin, both um, officers at Nebula Genomics. And what's exciting is that we're going to be able to um, look at the whole genome and understand what it is and how it may be contributing to different diseases, help us make predictions, and all the good things that it can do. We'll also talk about some of the risks. We'll be back on the other side of the break to talk about that. This is the Talking Biotech Podcast, and we'll be back in a moment. Thus far, Patreon support for the Talking Biotech Podcast has helped cover the cost of hosting, as well as promotion through social media. But there's a new reason you might consider sending a buck or two a month. Patent Trolls. A new breed of scumbag has emerged from the murk of the legal swamp. They have captured images from the Talking Biotech Podcast website that scoured the web to test that they were indeed copyright protected. Now, in a few cases, they allegedly were. Adolf Fulta is being asked to pay thousands of dollars in usage fees, even though he has obtained the images from the presumably creative common sources. He also removed the allegedly infringing items immediately upon notification. But that's not enough. The patent trolls want big bucks for their past use. Of course, Fulta told them to pound sand. But the harassing messages and certified letters continue, and it's possible he may have to lawyer up, a process costing about $10,000 to start. Simply to begin to battle the enemies of all that is decent. We are not paying the fees they are trying to collect. And hence another courtroom and associated hassles for sharing science. So we wave two of our eight fingers at you, patent trolls, and you can guess which two. I guarantee you, it's not a peace sign. And now back to the Talking Biotech Podcast. And now we're back on Talking Biotech Podcast. We're speaking with Kamal Abad and Dennis Grishin. They're both officers with Nebula Genomics, and they're helping understand, helping us understand, What's going on with DNA sequencing for the average consumer and, and why it's important and what are the risks and the benefits? And to me, it just blows me away because 
I remember sequencing things. I mean, it took me a summer to, to sequence about 11 kilobases in both directions. And that's why it, it makes me so happy to see where this has blossomed into. I don't think we could have predicted it. And, you know, consumers have become interested in their DNA sequence and the good things we can learn from it, whether it's from ancestry or whether it's from a disease presentation. And they have access to these commercial kits like Ancestry.com or 23andMe. And these provide some information. But how is something like that different from what a whole genome sequence can give you? Yeah, so the, the big difference is with whole genome sequencing, uh, we're effectively looking at almost 100% of your DNA. So back in the day when 23andMe and Ancestry DNA were getting started um, with their genetic tests, it was prohibitively expensive to do whole genome sequencing. Um, it was something that was not uh, approachable at a consumer level price point. Um, so their technology, which is called genotyping or DNA microarray, uh, is looking at a small subset, a small fraction of your DNA. So effectively what they're doing is they pre-specify regions of interest in your genetics. So these are areas that we know certain variants might be linked to certain traits that they're reporting on or might be linked to uh, various ethnicities for the ancestry reporting. And the genetic screen that they do is looking at those specific parts, those predefined portions of your DNA. And this is usually on the order of magnitude of, of less than 1%. Um, of your DNA. So that, that was great uh, back in the day. That was something that was uh, something that people could buy for Christmas gifts or, or, or buy for their loved ones. Um, and whole genome sequencing was too expensive. But today we're approaching the point where whole genome sequencing, uh, so looking at 100% of your DNA, is almost uh, at the same price as these more mainstream or, or well-known um, genetic tests. And that's really interesting because it enables us to generate a lot more interesting reports and analysis um, for users who are getting whole genome sequencing. And it's also generating a lot of data um, that I think will lead to a lot of interesting discoveries down the line. Oh, that, that's really cool. I mean, I know I bought 23andMe for my dad for a, a gift, and it, it revealed that he was, in fact, my dad. <laughs> good to know. <laughs> you know. Always, you know, good to check that box now and then. But but uh, mostly it was uh, it was just interesting for him to learn about all these relatives who start showing up, you know, from, you know, eighth cousins who you know, are from where he thought his family was from. So that's kind of cool. But, you know, but your point about it being small regions of the genome is really important because it only is detecting what we know has association with certain problems or tendencies. It doesn't allow for future extrapolation as well as if you have whole genome sequence. And so this is really an important differentiation. I guess the question that I have on this is that you know, what are the central risks to privacy that people have talked about? I mean, you're giving this, um, you know, deep information that is more representative, more representative of you than a fingerprint. And you can think of anything from insurance companies to, you know, exclude you from their roles to someone, you know, deciding you're not the person they need to reproduce with. You know, I mean, there's a lot of weirdness out there. What are the real risks to privacy when you give someone your cells for DNA sequencing? Yeah, that, that's an interesting question. It's something we, we think about a lot. And uh, there's been a lot of focus over the past couple of years on, on data privacy. Um, and what's interesting about personal genomics is we've seen a really, really strong focus on how genomic privacy is protected. 
Um, and what's, what's, what's kind of weird about the space, it, it lives in a lot of gray area uh, where it hasn't, a lot of the regulations around genomic data privacy haven't necessarily been well litigated or there isn't a lot of clarity. So you've alluded to how insurance companies can use your genetic data. Well, in most cases, they're not supposed to use your genetic data and employers aren't supposed to use your genetic data. But again, a lot of this stuff hasn't really been tried and, and tested um, too rigorously. Um, DNA privacy is, is a very difficult concept to wrap your head around uh, because there's been lots and lots of documented cases where somebody didn't want to get a, you know, a 23andMe test or an Ancestry DNA test. They didn't want their genetics to be out there in a database, but then a sibling did it or a parent did it or a cousin did it. And then there are ways to get back to that individual um, or trace uh, DNA back to that individual at the end of the day. So there's, there's tons of anecdotes and stories about um, you know, maybe sperm donors that were tracked down um, by someone through a, a sister that did a 23andMe test. And maybe they didn't necessarily want to be tracked down when they donated their sperm, or maybe that wasn't something they consented to. Um, so DNA privacy is a very complicated subject. Um, we're taking the stance that uh, you should be able to do whatever you want with your genetics. We never share it with any third parties, and we're not doing any of that um, family finding or family tracking things. But if you want to download your data and go share it with third parties, uh, you're able to do that. It, it really is an interesting question because it opens up so many, um, like, you know, in my car, I get a good insurance rate because I plug this little computer responder into my car that says I obey the speed limit. I don't run red lights and I don't have jackrabbit starts and hard on the brakes. And they have all of these actuarial tables that use the artificial intelligence to gather from that to say I'm a relatively low risk for a car accident and for them having a, a liability. So they give me a better rate. Is this the kind of thing where if I, you know, do you see that companies could say, if you donate your DNA and let us analyze it, we might give you a better insurance rate. I mean, this is how, you know, we always think of the nefarious ways it would be used, but is there a way that this may affect us in a positive way? Yeah, that, that's an interesting point. Um, we know that life insurance companies specifically uh, have been exploring how to use genetic data and underwriting their policies. And the predominant line of thinking was that we'll use your genome only to improve uh, your premium or improve the amount you're paying. So, so reduce it, so make it cheaper for you. We'll never increase the price using your genetics. And I think that's probably the way we're going to need to approach things because at the end of the day, um, if you have a pre-existing condition or a genetic condition that gives you a high likelihood of uh, getting some sort of heritable disease, um, you're going to need insurance. You need to find a way to pay for those healthcare costs. And it's, it's going to be something that we believe regulators are eventually going to need to step in to make sure that um, we're able to uh, protect folks who have gone genetically tested and make sure they're getting a fair shot. Do you think that this will be something that would be required at some point where everybody would get a genetic test just to uh, have a handle on what percent of the population may be putting pressure on a healthcare system or, you know, how, how do you see this going in the future with respect towards using it as a widespread public health tool? Yeah. I think as, as, as time progresses, the benefits of uh, just getting your whole genome sequence are going to increase a lot and the price is going to decrease a lot. And uh, a point will be reached relatively soon where it's just, doesn't make any sense to not get sequenced and 
it's possibly even will get to, to a point where every newborn already gets the genome sequenced in a way, I guess, and without their consent, but with the consent of the parents. So you don't even have uh, people who are probably born in 10 years, maybe even don't have a choice whether they want to get the genome sequenced or not, um, just because, you know, the benefits are, are so great. So I think that's where, where it will go and what will just happen because the, the, the benefits are clearly there. Um, but the other side of it, how do we make sure that there are no negative effects of this is then just the question that, um, you know, policy regulations and getting the right laws in place. Uh, and as Kamal mentioned, some of such laws are already in place, like, you know, life, uh, like health insurance companies are not allowed to discriminate based on genetics. But in other places, such laws are missing. So there, there are no laws that would prohibit discrimination in employment, education, housing, uh, and other area, areas based on, on based on genetics. And um, yeah, so I think it will definitely happen that 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 politicians will start working into this more closely as as genetics as whole genome sequencing becomes more commonplace. Yeah, it scares me a little bit because I don't necessarily trust us. Um, as a human race, we've done a bad job with already discriminating based on genetics in so many ways. And, you know, I, I, I would hope that our higher angels would dictate this process. But in the meantime, how do companies like yours help to protect consumer privacy? So a customer trusts you to sequence a genome. How do you take active steps to ensure that that information is only their information? So I think what differentiates us from other companies is that we not only have the policy of just, you know, saying we don't share your data um, because many companies, you know, claim to have such, such policies or shared in a limited way or whatever, but rather we actually also trying to develop technologies that will make it impossible for us to share your data uh, without your consent. Um, so what we have been working a lot uh, over the past uh, couple of years is in collaboration with uh, computer scientists, cryptographers, uh, to develop uh, ways to encrypt genomic data, such that, um, such that such that it enables our users to just stay much better in control of it. So for example, right now we have a, a beta test going on with a company called Oasis Labs. So what they are offering is essentially a platform for secure computing on data. So our users who participate in this better, uh, they can take their genome and have the genetic information be placed in so-called secure computing environments, uh, out of which it can be really easily taken out without without the permission of, of that individual. And all the analysis of the data, for example, for the generation of our reports happens inside those secure computing environments. So even if we ourselves as Nebula Genomics wanted to kind of just you know take that data and then do something malicious with it, we, we wouldn't be able to do that. Um, so that's kind of the direction. This is kind of one technology that we're exploring right now. And, and there are a few others. We had, for example, a new study published just a few days ago, exploring a different type of approach uh, to protect genomic data privacy. Our, our goal is to eventually make a fully trustless genetic test um, where you can get sequenced and uh, you're not concerned or worried about um, any malicious third parties having access to your data, and maybe you don't even need to trust us, um, Nebula. Um, one, one thing I kind of want to mention and add on to Dennis's point is um, something that's a little, a little bit different about us is our, our business model and 
um, our core philosophy was never around monetizing data. Um, so a lot of consumer genomic companies, the way it works is the, the long-term pitch for value creation and how eventually a lot of money is going to be made is that they're going to sell a lot of DNA tests um, as loss leaders. So maybe they won't ever make money on those DNA tests, but they'll be able to license and monetize the data in the future. So that was never part of our business model or our plan. Um, our plan was always to just make a good product that we could sell at a reasonable cost with a subscription that if people liked, they stayed subscri subscribed to. And that's how we generated revenue. And that's how we kept the company um, operating and, and scaling. So that way it, it aligns incentives a little bit more. Um, we're able to invest a lot in our product because we need our users to like it and want to stay subscribed and to enjoy it. Um, and we have no plans or intentions to monetize or sell data on the back end, um, which is one of the core differentiators between us and I think a lot of other genetic testing companies out there. Yeah, one thing I, I want to add to it is that while everything you know, Kamala said is of course true, we do not want to sell the data ourselves. We do want to essentially encourage people to share their data with researchers because you know if researchers get access to large data sets, you know, because of diseases, et cetera, can be better understood. But if you want to do it in a very transparent and controllable manner where people just, you know, know with whom they're sharing, they can opt in or opt out. Um, and uh, the, the risk, any privacy risks are, are minimized as, as much as possible. So we want to create a much more equitable system where people stay in control of the data and, in fact, also become a more active uh, participants in, in research, which can have, you know, additional benefits over just, you know, sharing the data without having the people involved. It's interesting because what you make me think about is if you took all the information that was out there right now, and compiled it, you might be able to find genes associated with trust. Because <laughs> if you think about it, that's the one underlying factor that all of the donors have. Because so many people who are not trusting the data or trusting the people who will be handling the data, you know, they're the ones who are still recalcitrant to that. And, you know, it, when you talk about the importance of the information, how could you help ensure people who are skeptical? How do you help them un, um, feel or realize that their information will not be used against them later on or anything like if, if I send you a sample, how is that sample handled? And then how are, how am I sure that those data won't be used anywhere else? Yeah, I think that that's a good question. As you said, it's fundamentally a question of trust. Um, because, you know, even if we have all those cryptographic technologies, and, you know, most people just want to understand how it works, how they can be feel safe about, about the data. And it's, it's, it's a challenge, right? How do we, do we convince people that we are really serious about genomic data privacy and that we, you know, that we're different from most other genetic testing companies? Um, and I, I don't think we have kind of a clear answer to it. Uh, we are, you know, for example, try to present to, to our users all the research that they've been doing, you know, all the publications we've published on this topic, try to give them really the key idea that they're putting, you know, a lot of effort into developing technologies to protect the data, uh, to really, to really establish, uh, that trust. Um, but it's, it's, uh, you know, an ongoing effort and there are some people that for sure who just been, you know, never convinced, um. But along that line, so who has access to that data? So if people are compiling their data in databases, 
is that data secure and protected from unauthorized access? And what happens if that database is hacked or compromised? Or, you know, can people just delete their data if they don't want it being in a uh, in a company's repository? Yeah, so we, we allow all our users to delete their data um, whenever they want to. And we'll never store a copy or store a bio sample or anything like that. Um, so it's really one of the, the core values is you have ownership of your, over your data and you can revoke our access to it at any point. Um, there, you know, you can never say, you can never say never when it comes to security risks or, or data being breached, but, uh, protecting our user data is one of our highest priorities. Um, and it's really core to the messaging of our company. So we invest a lot in making sure that data is protected and, and minimize the chance, um, that anything risky, uh, or anything negative can happen that compromises our users' data privacy. Um, but again, everyone, everyone in security will tell you never, never say never, never say it's impossible, but we do as much as we can to, to make sure uh, the risk is very, very low. Yeah, I think one, one thing I will add is that um, when it comes to genomic data and kind of security measures that are most commonly applied, those are essentially no different than other security measures that are applied to, to any other kind of data, right? Whether it's you know, the company that manages your email ad, email account or anything else. It's kind of all the same, right? And the specifically specific uh, specific protocols for genomic data, also they have been, for protection of genomic data, also there has been a lot of research about them. They haven't been really applied uh, practically very much. And that's where we're trying to take the lead uh, because we think there's a need for such protocols that have been developed especially for protecting genomic data we're trying to bring them out of you know academia uh and be, be the first genomic personal genomics company that actually applies them to create an increased level of protection when it comes to genomic data okay well what i'd like you to do is talk to the person who's on the fence you know there's somebody out there who realizes i really could use my genome sequence because i'm curious and I would love to have that tool as part of my diagnostic portfolio that I could present to a physician or to someone doing the analysis. You know, here's my sequence data, you know, let's work on this together. But at the same time, they feel that there is risk that's happening. You know, what can you tell them? What questions should they ask to a DNA sequencing company or bioinformatics company to ensure that they have all the benefit and the lowest risk possible. Yeah, I think, I think getting your genome sequenced is a personal decision for most people. Um, obviously, Dennis and myself are big advocates for getting genome sequencing, and we think the, the pros significantly outweigh the cons, but it doesn't necessarily mean everyone's going to feel like that. Um, I think there are certain groups of people that should be more cognizant of the upside of getting whole genome sequenced. Um, those can be folks who have a uh, history, of, of uh, history of disease in their family, most likely hereditary disease. So those people can, get, can derive a lot of value from doing whole genome sequenced, doing whole genome sequencing or getting their family to do whole genome sequencing. Um, also individuals that are, and Dennis already mentioned this before, um, that are currently doing family planning. Maybe you're, ha you're planning on having kids. Um, there's possibly a lot of upside for you to do whole genome sequencing in, in this case as well. Um, and it's also a decision that I think eventually we'll see uh, many people making earlier and earlier in life because the earlier you, you do it, uh, the more preventative measures you can take um, against anything you find. 
Um, so it's, 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 it's a cost benefit analysis. There's, there's always risk and everyone has their own appetite, um, for risk. But I think as the cost continues to go down and the science continues to advance, there'll be more and more compelling reasons, um, that'll convince more and more people to get whole genome sequencing. Yeah, so one thing I would, I would add and that I would tell to those people is actually to consider that there's a large number of people who are actually not concerned at all and who just make their genomes entirely public. So Professor Church, for example, has this personal genome project going on that has sequenced thousands of people. And all the genomes are available online. You can just go to the website and uh, download their genomic data. His, his own, Professor Church's personal genome is also publicly available. So you can um, download it as well. Uh, so this, this this group who are just genuinely not concerned, and I wouldn't say that they they you know they are being irresponsible. That possibly could be, I guess, the right attitude to take. Um, so, yeah, I think it's important to just to just not not to exaggerate. I think the perceived possible risks versus actually existing risks that are today still uh, relatively minimal. No, I'm with you. Um, you know, the thing that I regret, and I remember saying it way back in 1980s and 1990s was, we got to have grandma spit in a test tube or, you know, grab some cells off of relatives who are older, which people should do now, no matter what, you know, at least have cells banked from grandparents or whatever, because their information may be really critical in piecing together hereditary uh, information going forward associated with disease. And I, you know, I, I can't believe that I didn't, you know, bank some cells because I think this would have been a, a really wise move. The, the flip side is, is that, you know, in your second, so you can speak to that, but the second point is, is that I would be happy to go ahead and make my genome sequence public. I would go to you guys for 300 bucks, get the raw data, make it public, go for it. The problem is, is that I can imagine people at today's cost of DNA synthesis, coming up with unique markers and leaving them at a crime scene or something, you know, there's, I mean, you can extrapolate to those kinds of possibilities that are real. Um, so, so I don't, you know, that is a little science fictiony, but yeah. at the same time, you know, going backwards and going forward, there's a lot of missed opportunities and a lot of future opportunities yeah. too. Yeah. Actually, actually it's interesting that you mentioned that example. I, I, I while ago I was participating with a, in a, in, a, in a podium discussion with someone who brought it as well. And he cited it as a reason exactly to make your genome public because then he can just make the case, my genome is public. <laughs> Anything can just synthesize DNA and leave it in a prime place. So no one can really <laughs> can really blame me for a crime if, like that if I just make my genome public. <laughs> That's <laughs> a possibility yeah, as well. Oh, well, there you go. No, I was actually years ago, I thought, like, it must have been 1990 seven or eight back at the beginning when internet was getting to be a big thing. I wanted to do a website called crime scene contamination.com where I'd sell you like cactus DNA. And if you had, you committed a crime, you could spray cactus <laughs> or a dachshund and then someone, you know, they'd like be sequencing, you know, we got a cigarette butt right here and it appears who did it was a crow assisted by a dolphin, you know, but we can, anyway, uh, we can, collab we can collaborate on that. I'm in. <laughs> 
<laughs> the problem is the ethical edges of contaminating crime scenes. Yeah. That's the thing that kind of held me back. But, you know, once again, a you know, money-making opportunity. Well, all this is super exciting. I think it's really neat that, you know, we can now sequence a genome for a few hundred dollars. I'm going to have mine done. But what would you recommend for students who are coming through graduate school now or undergraduate? What kind of classes should they be taking for a job that really hasn't probably been invented yet? So I, I can give my two cents. And I think Dennis is going to have uh, a lot more context here since um, he's been doing his, his or he's, he was doing a PhD in, in genetics. Um, but at least from, from what we're seeing at Nebula, there's going to be a huge uplift in the number of people that are getting genetic testing over the next five to 10 years. And something that we're seeing there's a, a core need for is a highly skilled individuals that can help to interpret the results from those genetic tests. So we're seeing a big demand and a, a, a big lagging supply of things like genetic counselors and clinical geneticists. Um, so there's a wide range of careers, whether you want to be a scientist or you want to be a, more of a provider, where I think you can benefit um, by learning a lot about genetics. But I think, I think thinking more about how we use genetics in a uh, provider setting and how we can use genetics um, interpretation to give meaningful and actionable results uh, to users is going to be something that's more and more in demand in the future. And we're already seeing that today. Um, I, I would even see it a bit broader, you know, just biology in general as a place to be. Uh, and the sequencing today is, you know, obviously a big part of it, the many labs do sequencing in some form as part of their research. And yeah, I think it's, it's, it's a very exciting place to be today at this intersection, in particular biology and engineering computer science. Uh, we live in a time where biology is becoming less of an artisanal discipline as it has been you know, for, for a very long time where scientists did experiments with n equals equal one, but much more quantitative uh, field that generates a lot of data, today in particular sequencing data um, that has come out that needs to be interpreted and uh, understood. So there's a lot of ex exciting things uh, happening in, in that whole space right now. Um, and, you know, you see people from various backgrounds and some people, you know, studied math and then, you know, go into biology and then develop different statistical models to better understand, um, you know, genetics or any other things. Some people come from the biology background and then, you know, learn the computer science skills to better, uh, into, into better analyze that data and so on. So yeah, there are several entry points there, but yeah, this is really the intersection where a lot of interesting things are happening. Yeah, you know, what you just told me brings to mind that every time we have a legitimate science that brings new possibilities that are really exciting, we see the parallel emergence of less than ethical applications. So do you see a, or do you see it right now, any evidence of an industry which says, send us your DNA sequence and we'll tell you something, but maybe not based on science. You know, people who are claiming to be basically the people who can analyze your your the palm of your hand or the leaves in your teacup to be able to look in your genetic teacup and be able to make predictions. Is there the, any, any evidence of that kind of uh, less than realistic industry that's emerging or, or should we predict that? Uh, yeah, I can give you a few few examples. I think with genetic testing, there's a huge uh, gray area right now, where uh, where where essentially providers promise certain things 
that don't really work in practice very well. Like, for example, telling you, you know, what's your perfect diet for you based on your genetics or what's kind of the perfect exercise plan based on your genetics. And it's, it's a great area because, you know, there's some evidence that, you know, you might start having, you know, more uh, more fats or ca- carbohydrates in your day. It might be better for you based on your genetics, but it's just not strong enough at this point or maybe never will be to make any kind of recommendation. But there are a bunch of companies that make essentially this very strong recommendation based on very little actual evidence. And are there other companies that exist right now that maybe you really feel strongly about? Because there's so many of them. There's like, a, I think color is one that seems to focus just on biomarkers associated with predisposition to certain cancers. Or, you know, there's a number of them that are out there. And do you feel really strongly about any of these consumer-based services that you would say, okay, this is something I would be comfortable with recommending to a friend or, or a relative? Yeah, I think generally... Uh the big brands that you know have been around for for decades uh, like you know 23andme and ancestry dna you know you might you know criticize them for various things but generally they offer um they offer you know good services both in regards to you know reports quality reporting based on real evidence as well as uh decent privacy protection what i would essentially suggest to just stay away um uh, you know, maybe there you know dozens and dozens of you know relatively small uh, companies where there's really that might also that's where you often see kind of promises being made that might sound uh, quite unrealistic that you don't hear from more established brands, and that's where you should be becoming a bit wary whether that's really legit or not. And where do we find find you on social media? So you can follow Nebula Genomics on Twitter. And it's the handle is just at Nebula Genomics. Okay, what about either of you individually? So my my Twitter handle is at Obad Kamal. So at O B B A D Kamal K A M A L. Yeah, for me, my handle is at Dennis Grishin on Twitter. Okay, very good. Kamal Obad and Dennis Grishin, thank you so much for joining me today on the podcast. I I just thought this was fascinating and really gave us a glimpse inside this black box of genome sequencing and some of the benefits and some of the potential risks. So thank you very much. Yeah, thanks for having us. Appreciate it. Yeah, thank you very much. And as always, thank you very much for listening to the Talking Biotech podcast. You know, write a review on iTunes, get your DNA sequence. (laughs) I I know I'm going to do it. I think it's so cool that we can do, have this level of information for the cost or lower than a cost of having a, a new tire put on your car. I mean, this is amazing times that we're in. And it makes me happy um, and maybe concerned in a way too, the things that we need to think about uh, in order to do this correctly. So tell a friend about the podcast, uh, sequence a friend's DNA for them, you know, that kind of thing. Thank you very much for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast, and we'll talk to you again next week. The Talking Biotech Podcast reflects the personal views of Dr. Kevin Fulta and its guests. These are not the views of the University of Florida, its faculty, staff, or students. But after all, it is science, so they probably are, but it has to be clear that there is no university affiliation with this podcast, which is a damn shame, but I guess that's how it goes. So feel free to share this science communication effort, recommend guests, and support us with a few shekels over on Patreon. 
We invest all funds back into promotion of the podcast to widen the audience, enhance production, and expand science communication efforts in many ways. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.